Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome to this evening's pre-performance talk and to what I hope, indeed I know, is going to be an absolutely fizzing performance when we get into the house itself. Um, a few house notices first. Um, could you make certain that telephones, uh, bleepers, anything else that might whistle, sing or dance and provide an unexpected obligato to the proceedings uh, are turned off? Um, and may I remind you, no photographs and no recording, that we will be recording this. And if you'd like to hear all of it or bits of it, uh, again, it'll be up on the English National Opera website, uh, probably within two or three days for you to listen to. Um, should we need to leave, which is extremely unlikely, make your way to one of the exits marked with the little man running with an arrow and we'll be escorted out of the building by the staff here at the Coliseum. Um, I'm always bidden to apologise as well because sometimes from behind the red curtain noises of revelry creep up here from those who haven't had the good sense to buy a ticket and come and hear the pre-performance talk. Um, uh, I apologise in advance. We've had just so far this season, just once, we've uh, got away with it. The Barber of Seville is apparently the ninth most performed opera in the world and you can see why. It has a winning heroine, Rosina, with steel in her backbone and a mind of her own. There's an ardent aristocratic suitor, Count Alma Viva, who, with the help of the local barber, outwits Rosina's gruesome guardian, Dr Bartolo, who is hoping to lead his ward to the altar. And there is, of course, Rosina's score, bubbling, sparkling and scarcely pausing for breath. This quartet of characters first moved and loved north of the Alps, not in Italy. The libretto was carved out of the first of a trilogy of plays about Figaro by Pierre Beaumarchais, first performed in 1775 in Paris by the Comédie Française. Mozart and da Ponte had already borrowed the second play 30 years before for their opera The Marriage of Figaro. And Rossini's Barber was not the first opera to bow borrow Beaumarchais' first play about the Barber of Seville. Giovanni Paisello had set the story to music for a performance in St. Petersburg in 1782. Rossini's version was given its premiere in Rome on the 20th of February 1816, and in the audience on that first night, Paisello's supporters made life very difficult for the performers. Some of them hissed and jeered throughout, and there was on trouble on stage too. Poor Don Basilio tripped, cut himself, and almost broke his nose and bled through his great aria about calumnia. <laughs> While the Manuel Garcia, who sang Count Almaviva, extemporised a serenade under Rossini's window that wasn't at all what Rossini had composed, but based on a series of Spanish love songs. <laughs> but it was the use of the basso buffo, the comic bass, Paisello's supporters particularly disliked. So Dr. Bartolo and the music teacher Don Basilio were given the bird. However, all's well, as so often in Rossini's comedy that ends well, by the second performance all had been forgiven and the Barber of Seville went on to become, well, the ninth most popular opera in the world. We have a quartet of guests to explore Rossini's opera, The Barber of Seville, and you can see behind me on the screen images from the current production, what we're going to see tonight. We're joined by Elgin Lear Thomas, the tenor who's covering the role of Count of Valdemiva, who will be sharing his ideas about Rossini's hero with us. And we're also joined by Andrew Smith, a member of the music staff here at Eno, and they'll be performing music at the end of our time together from the opera. Also with us, and this is a real treat, is Laurie Steiner, who's the fly master here at London Coliseum, and who's going to spill the beans about what happens backstage 
during a production like The Barber of Seville. But our first guest is Dr. Benjamin Walton, a senior lecturer in the music faculty at Cambridge University and with a particular interest in 19th century music. Will you please welcome Benjamin Walton? Ben, was it just the fact that, 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 that the audience was packed uh, with Paisiello supporters that caused disappointment on the first night of Barber? Or were there other reasons too? Well, I think, as you just mentioned, there's, there's two sets of reasons. On the one hand, there's all the things going wrong. There's the, there's the tripping up, there's the cat coming on stage during the Act 1 finale, there's, you know, all these, all these different things. I've forgotten things. the cat. Yeah, yeah, no, the cat the comes on. You've seen these under, under Rosina's skirt. Yeah, during the Act 1 finale, a cat comes on and won't get off. They try and shoo it off. Eventually, someone picks it off and, and throws it into the wings. <laughs> um, so there's, there's, various, there's various hiccups. But no, I think, I mean, it's, it's quite a good way to place the opera too, that in a way I think it's worth thinking about the first night of the Barbara Seville as a bit of a sort of rite of spring moment, you know, as a sort of moment where um, a very self-consciously new piece of music is arriving on stage and there are a lot of people in that opera house who are determined that it's not going to be heard at all. And exactly as with the Rite of Spring, it's not just that people come prepared to boo at the end. It's that, as we know, Rossini wrote a letter to his mother the day after the premiere saying that they, they made too much noise all the way through. So all the way through that performance, they're basically shouting it down. And so, so yes, it's a, it's a failure, but it's a planned failure. It's sort of, it was absolutely predestined to be a failure because the Paisiello supporters <laughs> had to know it would be. <laughs> um, is it true that Rossini wrote it in just three weeks? It seems to be. I mean, it's a, a bit like the cat in the Act 1 finale. It's this sort of, these sort of things you tend to assume that as soon as you look into it, it'll turn out to be myth. You know, it'll turn out that actually he had six months or something, and it's just, you know, it's come down to us, he wrote very fast. However you do the calculation of the dates, it's very hard to find more than three weeks when he could have written it. Because he signs a contract for it on the 26th of December. It's being performed by the mid-February, but he doesn't get the libretto until the end of January. And however you, however you figure it, he must have had about 10 days, 11 days for Act 1, bit less than that for Act 2, and then enough time for it to be a little bit rehearsed before they actually put it on. So no, it really is that fast. And, and how radical was it to choose Beaumarchais' play? After all, we know um, that when Mozart and da Ponte chose the second of the Beaumarchais plays, there were much questions asked in, in Vienna, particularly by the emperor himself, about the politics of it. Was it also radical for Rossini to choose it? It's, it's, it's an interesting question. When you read Stendhal's Life of Rossini, which he wrote in the 1820s and has become the sort of source of lots of stories ever since, Stendhal frames it as... Rome, the censors in Rome were trying to rule out topic after topic and they wouldn't let them do any sort of opera because they were so worried about political ramifications and eventually they just happened to catch a censor on a sort of day when he wasn't concentrating and that's how the piece sort of slipped through. So that's a sort of nice version of, oh yes, we've, we've got this seditious work on stage. On the other hand, if we've got this Paisiello story, you know, we've got this very, very well-known opera on the play, already the play is nothing like as seditious as the marriage of Figaro, you know, I mean, and particularly once you have the character of Figaro here, he's a barber who's helping out. And so there's, there's a way in which he's sort of 
poking fun at the upper classes, but, you know, it's the member of the upper classes, the count, who gets the girl at the end, in and, way, you know, the, the aristocracy triumphs. Indeed, and that makes it, in some ways, a rather conservative piece, both in the sense that it's the middle class who are uh, discomforted in the play, but also because it's a classic kind of Italian story of how the servant, the clever servant, is actually cleverer than the master and outwits everybody. So there's something very conservative about the basic outline of the story. Absolutely, and I mean, it's sort of even Beaumarchais in his, in his preface to the original play basically says sort of uh, it's over self-deprecatingly, um, well, we all know this story, it's been done so many times before. But I mean, he's right. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a 17th century play, basically, that you find in Moliere and you find in Spanish comedy that's then been tweaked to work in the early 19th century. But so it's, I don't think it's revolutionary in that sense. As we've been talking, I've been thinking about what you said at the very beginning, it's kind of growing like whatever in my mind. This idea that we should think of this as a rite of spring moment, that this is a moment when things change, when nothing will ever be quite the same again. What is it about the barber that is that rite of spring moment? What is it about the opera itself that, that makes it that? Yeah, I mean, we've got Rossini as... A 23-year-old composer, he's about to be 24, he's at the end of, end of his year, um, he's begun to take Italy by storm, had huge successes in Venice, then he's got a commission at La Scala Milan, that's been a big success, he's just the year before been brought down to Naples and has been made the, the main composer there, so he's the, he's the hot young thing in the, of his generation, everyone's excited about what he's doing, and he's come up with a musical style which, yeah, it's sort of, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a quote from the, when, when he gets to Paris in the 1820s, there's a quote about Rossini where a critic writes, there's only three things for the 1820s that we can't do without anymore. There's cayenne pepper, and there's Byron, and there's the music of Rossini. <laughs> and it's this sense of, it's such exciting music for them that they've never heard anything quite so physically thrilling. I mean, yeah, so you can go to the Rite of Spring. You can also go to the sort of, you know, early 60s arrival of rock music and the way that people are terrified about what it's doing to the younger generation, this sort of terribly exciting rhythmic sound that is driving everyone wild and that is slightly suspicious as a result for, for the older generation. Is Rossini, uh, quite apart from the excitement of the music, is he also um, beginning to challenge the conventions of opera bruffa, Italian comic opera in this piece. Is he beginning to go his own way? Yes and no. I mean, the, the funny thing about the conventions is that in a way, part of what he does in writing his early operas and part of how he manages to write quite so many operas in his early years is he actually sorts out those conventions and turns them into a sort of code. So he takes the conventions he's, inher he's inherited from earlier opera buffer composers and makes them into a structure that you can fill as fast as possible. So there's a sense in which he's not undercutting anything, he's just making it quite clear and regular and famously reusing music where he thinks that a new audience won't have heard it um, before, so if, a, if it, a piece has been premiered in another city, then he can use some of that music because no one will know it yet. So, so he's sort of simplifying and making, but then he's also, particularly for this piece, I mean, wonderfully in this piece, assuming that the audience knows some of those forms that he's using, and then he can start to undercut them to have fun with the drama through musical means. For example? 
for example, I mean, so many examples. One example would be that the opening moments of the opera after the overture, the first words of the opera are piano pianissimo, and you have the entire introduction is about trying to wake up Rosina, who won't be woken up however loud the chorus sing, and then at the end, the chorus singing much too loud and everyone trying to make them be a bit quieter because the worry is that the police will come. That is, you have an entire introduction in which dramatically nothing happens. Rosina just doesn't wake up. It's just a sign that as yet the barber hasn't arrived and therefore the piece can't really begin. But it's all based around a musical joke. Is there a sense in which Rossini is sharp and clever enough to realise that there are things you have to do um, uh, in order to keep at least the audience with you? I mean, there are parts of this comic opera form that you have to hold faith with. Yes. I mean, t as I said, there's a sort of, there's a, there's a structure he does. It's conventional to open with this introduction, and so he gives you the introduction, but he sort of has fun with the introduction. Similarly, I mean, the sort of the, perhaps the best moment of just giving you the form straight is the act one finale, which is, which is formally absolutely correct. The right sections come at the right times, but again, he sort of injects it with this rhythmic energy, which makes it more exciting just about than any finale has ever been before. And something else happens in that too, which there's a moment of extraordinary silence. Suddenly, everything stops. Yes. I mean, that must have taken the audience by complete storm. They weren't used to this, were they? Yes, and it's another example that in the first performance, presumably you just had this constant noise and no one noticed. By the time anyone's listening, that yes, the sort of... Because Rossini, he, he arrives as the young Turk, but he also arrives as the composer who um, is famous for being noisy and using the orchestra too much. That those, the people who don't like him get annoyed with him because he puts so much noise from the singers and from the orchestra the whole time. And he sort of uses the instruments in this way. Everyone's always complaining about his use of the bass drum and the, the cymbal and all these sort of percussion instruments and brass instruments that they feel shouldn't be used quite so much. Do the characters get given music that we immediately associate with them? Or do they reveal themselves in the music that Mussini writes? I think much more the latter. And it's sort of, it's interesting because it's in a way what you have in this piece is a whole series of musical performances. I mean, I think it's, it's not any exaggeration to say that this is the most musical of all operas. That is, it's the, it's the opera that is most about music and whose drama is most dictated by working with the music. And one of the ways that works is that you have a lot of set-piece performances, so a lot of performers, a lot, of, a lot of moments of song on stage. So there can be times when you feel like, am I actually finding out about the real character because they're constantly performing? And it actually becomes, you know, watch out tonight and see, see what you think. It becomes quite interesting that there's so much sort of self-conscious performance of one character to another, that sometimes it's the sort of, it's the little asides where you realize, well, that's the moment where, that's where we're hearing the sort of the real character, but we're not getting terribly much of it. Mm. We're getting little bits of it. Except in the case of someone like Bartolo or Basilio, mm. where in a way they are, they are caricatures as characters, but that's, that's everything you get, that they're sort of, they're entirely shaped by the music. And it's a great, you know, people talk quite a lot about 
one way of doing down the barber over the years has been to say, well, look at the marriage of Figaro. It's so human. It's, it's, about, it's about real life. We can understand these characters. They're fully fledged. Whereas something like the Barber of Seville, it's much more sort of puppets, and it's, you know, it's all, it's all two-dimensional. I think that's... It's understandable, faced with Mozart, why you come up with that sort of conclusion. But I think what it misses is the extent to which the caricatures come to life through performance. Mm -hmm. That through the performance of the actors on stage, they become real-life characters, and they're no longer the sort of the flat, two-dimensional puppets that you might see if you just read the script. That couldn't be more true of Racine's celebrated aria, could it? Una voce poco fa, little voice I heard far yeah. off. I mean, in a way, um, as well as performing herself, what she also does is have character to the, the way in which, in that aria, she hits the word but, ma. Everything about her stubbornness, everything about her bloody-mindedness is caught in that too. So she does share humanity with perhaps something more puppet-like. Absolutely, and there's the, the other really interesting thing about that aria and so many other bits is that we tend to think of operatic virtuosity as being, particularly at this period in operatic history, this is the way that the singers, they're allowed to show off. You know, this is the moment, you have to do it for them, they have to have their cabaletta, they have to be able to show you how wonderful they are, and that was just the convention of the time. What Rossini does for us, particularly in that aria, but also in lots of other places, is show you that virtuosity is the character. <laughs> that, that he's going to make Rosina sing an incredibly difficult part, but that is going to convey quite how feisty she is. So, so the two things come together. Mm. Rossini also, lastly, loves his effects. Who forgets the explosion at the end of Don Basilio's aria about scandal creeping around, suddenly, but also the storm. I and mean, this, is, this is, in a way, perhaps a young man showing off what he can do with an orchestra. Yes, and showing an orchestra. I mean, you, you, think, you think of these opera productions spreading around Italy and around Europe in this period. There must have been an awful lot of theatre orchestras at this stage with very few violins and some slightly ropey wind players. And they must have been pretty terrified by some of this music. You know, suddenly they were, they were, they were looking at an overture or one of the storms and thinking, OK, I guess we've got to try and play this. <laughs> Benjamin Morton, thank you very much Not indeed. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, we're joined now by a very special guest, Laurie Steiner, who is the Flymaster here at the London Coliseum. Will you welcome Laurie Steiner? I'm going to move that a little closer to you. Um, how did you get to work on the stage here at English National well, Opera? Um, when I left school, I went into advertising, uh, worked as a junior delivering artworks around the West End, and my family had, had all come from theatre backgrounds, um, had worked backstage, and my uncle just said to me one day, why don't you come and have a look? It's, it's really easy. You'll, you'll love it. It's, uh, it's a bit of a... You get a bit of a bug, and then you'll... You, you won't want to do anything else. So my 16-year-old just didn't really want to do anything except for earn money and uh, came in on a Saturday uh, just to do a, a performance um, as a like a standby prop man. And uh, you couldn't tear me away from the place after that. It was, that was it. I was hooked. One, one, one show call in here and that was it. And you've been here ever since? Yep, 31 uh, years ago. 31 years, amazing. <laughs> um, did they train you on the job? Was there any training? How did you train for this? It's one of those situations where you, you're sort of thrown in at the deep end and you basically have to sink or swim. Um, 
there's a lot of um, banter, there's a lot of um, ribbing on stage, there's a lot of people just basically trying to put you on the spot all the time. Um, there's lots of people that, that want to help you, want to show you, and so you, you sort of have to sort of get along with everybody who's here and just, just do the job. It, there's no formal training, although in recent years there is a bit more training to do with uh, lifting and carrying and uh, legislation to do with uh, like suspending loads and things like that. You, you just have to learn a few more things now. But, but I've had no formal training as such. And what is special about the flies here? <sighs> Basically, we put anything we can put anything in the air and we have to keep it up there. So <laughs> it would be unfortunate if anything fell down. So it, it's my job to make sure it stays up and it can be taken down safely. Uh, nobody gets hurt, uh, nothing gets broken. Um, so it's, yeah, that, that's, that's my job. I have to make sure it stays up. In <laughs> most theatres, certainly ones of this size. Now, yeah. Uh, you've got a computer possibly helping yes, you. Yep. Have you here? We do have um, a, a system, it's called Kinesis, um, and it is a programmable uh, computer motorised system that uh, it's, it's quite an easy thing to programme, but um, nerves take over when you're operating it. A lot of people don't like to do it live. They like to sort of do the bit that, that's uh, sort of not seen, if you like. Uh, they like to do the, the programming and run a dry run rather than do the actual cue. It is nerve-wracking when you're lifting a five-ton piece of scenery up into the air for storage or if you have to run a cue that everything has to come together at the same time. In this show, it's a bit different. This is all manual flying, so everything that you move for this show is, is done by hand, pulling a bit of rope, uh, like old-fashioned uh, hemp houses. It's, you, it's you make it sound frightfully easy, but the, the, the thought of having watched people pulling flies in the yeah. south, it's not easy, is it? It's a physical job. It is uh, absolutely a physical job. It's, it's one of those things that you, in the flies you have to have a bit of a, uh, an affinity to it. If you, if, you don't, if you don't like height, it's not very good for you because you're working right up in the gods. You're, you're sort of higher than the highest piece of scenery and you're looking down on the stage from above, really, from the side of the stage. But, but you, have to, you have to know what you're doing. It's not a job for anybody. Um, I did learn the job um, and had some very good people teaching me the, the different techniques of how, how things work, how to pull, how you don't hurt yourself, how you don't strain your back, how you lift and carry weights. And because we've got a counterweight system, um, it's basically like weighing scales. You put the bit of scenery on a counterweight bar on one side and you put uh, a load of steel um, weights on uh, a counterbalance on this side and it goes up and down that way. You just have a piece of rope that's on a continuous loop that you can pull so that the thing does one thing or the other. Um, and, 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 and there was a tradition that this was done by sailors. It used to be done by T sailors. Now yeah. tell me why that should be. Lots of shows have uh, different flying aspects, different elements. Um, most most um, theatres are sort of like, they don't have a very good or a very big crew. They'll have two or three people on site all the time. Some shows need lots of flown elements, and so you need more people to pull them. When it was a hemp house, it was all sort of one-to-one -one weight, mm -hmm. and so there was no 
uh, putting extra weight and having it easier to move. You had to do it physically. So to do that, you had to have bodies. And the only thing that you could do is go to like the local port or down to the Thames and ask the sailors to come in and basically pull the ropes. They knew a thing or two about rope. So, uh, yeah, they... they so this is the era of the, of the sailing ship? Yes, absolutely, yeah. Um, we haven't done that for some time. Although some, some countries do still use their, their armed forces and for, for big theatre productions because they're the only people physical, uh, who can do the physical jobs. Um, and yeah. whistling and whistling? Whistling, yeah. I mean, that's, it's a bit of a, a bad thing to do. And uh, traditionally, you, you, you're not, people don't like to whistle because it used to be used for a signal to bring scenery in rather than shout. Uh, rather, th they didn't have radios in those days. We do now, um, but they used to whistle certain, certain tones, certain tunes, just so that pieces of scenery could fly in and fly out. Um, whoever was calling the piece in from below wouldn't necessarily shout it. They'd whistle. So, and 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 this means that you all have to be careful of not whistling. So yeah, th it's bad luck to whistle on stage because a piece of scenery might come in and hit you on the head. So. <laughs> How many people have you got in your in your team? Uh, there's uh, myself, my and I have a deputy who is the, the the computer whiz kid. He's the guy who basically does anything. If if anything can't be worked out, he's the one that works out how to do it. Basically, he's uh, he's the clever guy. And then there are uh, six senior technicians, and then a pool of about forty casual and contract staff, who we basically have two or three people on each show, dependent on the, the size of the show. What's the most, in terms of a team, you've ever had on stage for a show? I had uh, 17 people on the fly rail for, and, and I was the person calling the shots on the rail, which I don't do very often anymore, but um, it, this was a few years ago for a show called Condide. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one that we did here, and yeah, I had 17 people on the fly rail all doing a queue at the same time. So you had to sort of walk, walk along, tap them on the shoulder, like, you go, you go, you go, that's it. And, and then go back along the rail to get them to do another queue. So it was moving from one rope onto another rope onto another rope, and the sequences were just phenomenal. <laughs> Scary. <laughs> and, and the Seawings production isn't too much of a challenge? Not too much of a challenge. It's, it's a nice show. Uh, it used to be just a one-man show um, because there was just two elements that had to fly. There's a big canopy that has to lift out so that the trucks can move about, the stage trucks on stage. Um, and then a white border used to fly in. Um, but now it's a little bit different. I'm not entirely sure what they've chosen to do now. And I don't want to spoil any surprises, but there are... OK. Let me, let, this is the irresistible journalist's question. OK. Um, what's the most extraordinary thing you've ever had to fly in the fly out? I had to fly a horse. Not a, not a real horse. <laughs> uh, for, for Trojans. Uh, some years ago. But it was a very unusual shape. Um, and it, its head had to be sort of inverted underneath it so that you had like equal balance it was uh, yeah it was quite a nice piece to fly but but strange and what was the show trojans the trojans yeah. the trojans um, the, the heaviest thing that i've ever had to fly is a nine and a half ton truck for an opera um uh, that was for fidelio and that was in recent years and uh, the the thing that gives me the most nightmares was a show we did a few years ago dr d don't know if anybody mm -hmm. saw that. Uh, Damon Albarn was the composer for that. And it was horrific. There was a, a platform on stage that uh, weighed 12 and a half tonnes. Um, we had to have uh, special winches brought in that could carry that load. And 
because I wasn't prepared to put anybody else in the firing line should anything go wrong. I took that on myself, and that was horrible. That was, and there were only a few performances, but it was one of those shows that if anything went wrong, it was one of those situations where the, you couldn't do the rest of the show. It, this, this big platform had to just keep moving very slowly up and down, but it, it was very, very heavy, and it was just horrible. <laughs> but but uh, a good experience, and, and there were lots of elements of the show that I really did like. It's just this big, heavy lump that was horrible. <laughs> Laurie Steiner, thank you very You're much welcome. indeed. Our final guests tonight are the tenor, Elgin Thomas, who's covering the role of Count Almaviva in his survival of Jonathan Miller's production of The Barber of Seville, and a member of the music staff here at English National Opera, Andrew Smith, who has just in wonderful time arrived at the back. Would you please welcome Elgin Thomas and Andrew Smith. Elgin, you have to oh, talk for your first. supper before Sorry. you're allowed to sing, to give Andrew time to catch his breath. Um, who is Count Almaviva? You tell us who you think he is. Uh, Count Almaviva is a young chap. Uh, we don't know he's the Count at the beginning of the opera. That doesn't come until a recit following a, an aria and a little, uh, little duet with the, uh, with the chorus. But he's, I, I think in this production, he's around between 18 and 20. Uh, he's clearly a very wealthy man, uh, perhaps too young to have this amount of money and power. Doesn't quite know how to use it. Yeah, we of course know how, how he abuses his power in uh, La Nota di Figaro. But uh, in this opera, he's um, kind of finding out who he is, I think. He's a pretty inept wooer. He's not too great. He has, he's, he's really not. He has two shots at wooing her through song. Uh, in act one, scene one, he has his first aria and then another, it's not really an aria, but more of a canzonetta, a little, little ditty. And um, they don't seem to work. And then of course he's got to play two other characters and reveal he's the count before she's convinced, before she really can commit. And, and what, what do you think the attraction for him of Rosina is? She's very beautiful. Uh, he follows her. Actually, if, I mean, if you stage this in the modern day, it would actually be quite strange because you would think he's a stalker. It's really, you know, he sees her. There's a new he, take on yeah, the piece. He sees her in Madrid and then he follows her all the way to Seville and you think, who is this guy? He must really like her considering he's never spoken to her. So it's the beauty that strikes him first. And then... As uh, after we meet Figaro and we realise um, her situation and that she's basically trapped, I think it's the it's the game. Mm. I think it's the the trials he has to face in order to get her that he really, I think he really relishes those things. It's a role, as you've suggested, that does require enormous acting talents. Mm. You're not only uh, the young Count Almaviva, you're also pretending you're Lindora of a student. You're also going to be a fake music master. Yeah. You're also going to be a drunk uh, officer in charge yeah. of everyone. I mean, uh, these are big challenges for any singer, aren't they? These are huge challenges. I think, uh, certainly from the Rossini operas I know, that Almaviva is, if not the lowest vocally, one of the lowest. And that's not, it's, the tessitura is fairly low. If you compare that to Italian in Algeria or uh, Il Turco in Italia, they're very, very, very high. I think that was probably to give him some sort of countish grounding uh, but he um, 
he has to be able... So he walks on. We don't know he's the Count. We then find out that he's calling himself Lindoro. So he's playing this student. So we can't be too grand in that kind of body language because he doesn't want to give the game away too early. And then Figaro suggests he's got to be this drunken soldier. And all of a sudden, he just does it. It is unbelievably well, depending on who you've cast, of course. But then, <laughs> by the, but in this, it's very, very good. But then, halfway through the scene, well he completely, yeah, well retrieved. He completely fails. And then Figaro comes in. He's like, "What are you doing? Stop doing this." So he's not. He can't be too convincing a drunk. The count has to come through in that. And then again, with Don Alonso, this is the biggest challenge because he has. You have to physically change the sound of the voice. Uh, usually this is done by uh, making the sound more nasal or just a generally not very nice sound. In this production, Eliazar is doing a wonderful uh, Mexican accent, which gives it a real... Uh, it's very, very, very funny. And then, of course, he's got to be the Count. So we've got to go through this whole opera and the stamina of changing these characters and voices and being drunk and sober and whatever is very, very difficult. It's not easy at all. What are you going to sing for us and what is Andy going to play? Uh, we are going to perform Ecoridente in Cielo, or, uh, uh, <laughs> God, I've said it in Italian now, um, See How the Smile of Heaven. Uh, this is the uh, Count's first attempt, his first aria, his first attempt at wooing Rosina, which sadly fails. So he's outside the window. He's outside the window. Fiorello, his friend's in the corner with the band. Not quite the right picture, but it is there somewhere. And uh, they're accompanying <coughs> him and... Uh, it goes very well to begin with, and then, yeah, it kind of fails. I'm sure we're all going to be seduced. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I think we'd I think we'd have come to the window. I think you'd be so. Um, we have a little time, as always, at the end. If any of you in the audience would like to ask questions, put your hand up of any of our guests, and there's a roving microphone about to rove. Put your hand up, and I will ca catch my eye if you like. We've got a question over there. It's not really a question. Yeah, it's not really a question. But if you happen to have read the ENO's Facebook page this morning, this is the hundred and fiftieth. Product, uh, performance of this production, which says an awful lot for Jonathan Miller's skills. Yeah. We, we, we should celebrate that, all of us, I think. <laughs> Ab absolutely. Um, how many of you see, how many, of the, how many performances have you seen of it? Probably three or four, including dress rehearsals. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. I think and, there are lots of us. And it has the best, one of the best ENO walls I've ever seen, the wall across the stage. Yes. They're, they're so good, mm -hmm. the walls. Yeah. <laughs> for those who haven't seen it. <laughs> Thank you for reminding us. Another question from anybody in the audience who'd like to ask our guests anything. Yes, in the front row here, second row. I wondered how you felt about singing in English. How you feel about singing in English? Yeah. Um, English is a very difficult language to sing in. We have lots of... Uh, lots of consonants that are not always easy to sing on. Uh, the diphthongs and the vowels are difficult to put across. Uh, there are lots in that, such as here. It's difficult not to go here to put that kind of uh, stress on them. But as a native speaker of the language, I really adore singing in English because it gives an immediacy of performance that I simply can't get, apart from Welsh, I simply can't get from other languages. As much as I love singing in Italian and, uh, and French and German and whatnot, they're beautiful languages. And of course, we learn our translations to the best of our ability. And hopefully, you know, we learn how to speak those languages as well. But nothing for the immediacy of the acting compares, I don't think, to singing in your mother tongue. But yeah, it's never, it's never easy, but I love it. There's a question at the back. So the awesome singer, 
have you, if you, if you're, if you're married or engaged, whatever, did you propose? Did you have you? Did you sing to your partner? <laughs> I mean, with, with a voice like that and uh, songs like Echoing uh, in Cello, you, you have to. I, 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 my I wish my, also I wish a singer, my voice so I'm was not sure that would go down very well. So, uh, um, no, but if they weren't, if they weren't a singer, then perhaps maybe I would have given that a go. But uh, it's an interesting idea, certainly. It's one that I'll bear in mind. <laughs> Do we have another question from anybody? Yes, at the back row at the end. Back to language. Have you ever sung in Welsh? I have sung in Welsh, yeah. Welsh is my mother tongue, so I've sung in Welsh. And how does that translate into opera? Oh, uh, yeah. it depends. I've actually done Barbara of Seville in Welsh, and that wasn't great. Um, it works particularly well with Russian. Yeah. Uh, it's with it sort of, it's quite, I don't want to say anything that is quite untrue, but Russian certainly at times feels quite far back and dark, and Welsh is also very similar. It also has some similarities to German, but in the consonants, but the vowels maybe not so much. Mm. Um, it works just as well as any other language, really, if, as long as you put in the work and you learn how to sing it as you would in Italian. I'm longing to know, where did you sing Barbieri Barber in, in, in Welsh? Uh, there's, a, there's, there's a very, very small Welsh, uh, Welsh language opera company called, uh, company called Opera Cymru, and they do all their operas in... There's only one production a year, but they tour um, very small village halls and schools in, uh, in Wales. That's the... Yeah. Good. We've time for one more question. Who would like to, as it were, bring the curtain down on this evening's pre-performance talk? Yes. Your... Um explanation about singing in English from the point of view of acting was very interesting because uh, I wonder now that we have surtitles whether it is necessary for all operas here to be in English. Oh, that's a, that's a tough old question, that is. Uh, <laughs> Maybe it's too political to You know, I had, a discussion, I, know. With, I had a discussion with the deputy head of opera from the RNCM recently and they decided, they did La Vie Parisienne, and they did it in translation, mm. uh, in English. And they didn't use surtitles. I think this is the best example I can give mm. at the moment. And they got uh, many, many, many complaints. And this wasn't due to the fact that the diction in the production was bad. It was because they hadn't taken into consideration how uh, many members of the audience would be slightly hard of hearing. And no matter how good diction can be, some words are inevitably lost. And so I'm kind of all for surtitles as long as, interesting enough, I think they've taken the surtitles for the recit, for the recits down in this production. So it'll be interesting to see what you think mm. about that. They're there for all the, the musical numbers, but for the recit, it's gone because, I mean, the diction is crystal clear uh, in this production, in my opinion. But uh, that's an interesting thought. Well, I might just add a thought, I don't know what you would feel. Um, but th this is a company whose whole traditions grew out of singing in English, which is more than a question of surtitles. It's something about a style and a tradition too. That, that, that those of us, and I'm sure there are lots of us in this room, who followed this company all the way from uh, Islington um, in the early days to here, um, treasured really as a young, as a young man, younger, younger people. Anyway, um, I don't have opinions, but that's what I think. Um, can I say on behalf of all of you, thank yous, to you for being a lovely, quiet, attentive audience. Um, to Benjamin Walton, to Elgin Lear Thomas, and to Laurie Siner for giving up their evening, early evening, to be with us. Thank you all very much indeed. <laughs>